Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, 2007. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today, we will have an opportunity to speak with Dr. John Mazuski, MD, PhD, FCCM, and Beth Taylor, RD, FCCM, authors of an article recently published in the February 2007 issue of Critical Connections entitled Gastric versus Intestinal Feeding Does It Make a Difference? Dr. Mazuski is a professor of surgery at Washington University in St. Louis, in Missouri, and Ms. Taylor is a nutrition support dietitian at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Both are with us today to discuss feeding issues in the ICU. You can learn more about this topic and other nutrition issues by attending the 6th Summer Conference in Intensive Care Medicine, Nutrition as a Therapeutic Agent to Improve Critical Care Outcomes. More information about this conference is available at the end of the podcast. The reference for this particular article is Critical Connections 2007, Volume 5, Number 1, page 10. And as always, I'm grateful that you both are able to join us today on the podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, I would echo that. I'm very happy to be here. So um, I've tried to keep this uh, reasonably short. It's a very important topic, and I thought we'd begin, I guess we'll start with you, Dr. Mazuski, about... Uh, what are some of the theoretical advantages of post-pyloric feeding in the critically ill patient, and has this been borne out in the literature? Yes, I think these are important questions. The two issues that generally are brought up with reference to advantages of post-pyloric feeding are primarily related to decreased complications, specifically the risk of aspiration, and secondly, the ability to more expeditiously deliver nutrients to the individual. As uh, I think your question states, these really are theoretical advantages. There's been a great deal of effort put into studies to try to say, is one method better than the other, and are these theoretical advantages really borne out when we look at it? And the literature, unfortunately, does not provide us with a real answer on this. Uh, As I indicated in the article, Summing together the various studies, you get sort of a heterogeneous data on this particular issue. Some of the studies seem to prefer and say that prepyloric feeding has an advantage, both in terms of better nutrient delivery and decreased risk of aspiration, and some of them don't bore that out. And so, again, I think this is an area where the lack of having a very large, huge study to definitively define this puts us at a little bit of disadvantage of saying whether or not it's useful. I certainly defer to uh, to Beth on this. We advocate using prepyloric feeding when it's feasible, but I think that when one looks at the critically at the data, it's really not out there to definitively prove that this is a better method. 
Ms. Taylor, do you have any other uh, comments in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned risk by aspiration, and, and I guess the other idea is that patients may be able to tolerate post-pyloric feedings before they can tolerate gastric feedings in terms of gastroparesis and other issues in the ICU? Right, that's correct. And I agree with uh, what Dr. Mazuski said. It's true that there's not any statistical significance regarding aspiration pneumonia. However, there are many patients, uh, for those of us, you know, that are in the trenches and working with these patients whom we cannot feed into their stomach, either because they have a um, gastric ileus, prolonged gastric ileus post-op. They may have issues with elevation of the head of the bed, which we know is still one of the number one defenses against ventilator-associated pneumonia. If you can't elevate the head of the bed, they may have increased risk with feeding in their stomach. So that's something we, you know, really haven't looked at. So, for example, patients who are on a balloon pump, some patients who are in traction, some patients who... um, maybe on even CVVHD, depending on where the catheter is placed. So there are a lot of patients who will go ahead and put the small bowel feeding tube in so that we can feed them because that's our only option for enteral nutrition. And then there are other patients like pancreatitis where we're seeing that we can successfully feed these patients at a point beyond the ligament of trites just as safely and probably better for them, less complications than if we gave them parenteral nutrition. One of the other questions that uh, I thought we would head into next is, let's pretend there is an ICU that doesn't currently do uh, post-pyloric feedings but is interested in doing it. What would be the advice and how would you recommend that that ICU proceed? Is it, depending, is it dependent on having a lot of technology there? Are there special equipment? Should it be done by an endoscopist or inter- interventional radiology? And I guess maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Mazuski. What would be your thoughts to an ICU that isn't currently doing this? Well, I think there's those are a number of options, and I think there's certainly decisions to be made between uh, do you need fluoroscopically placed uh, enteral feeding tubes, uh, do you want to try to do it endoscopically, but I'm going to really kick it over to Beth here because I think that our experience has been that, in fact, that you can successfully place these feeding tubes through a dedicated group of individuals at, uh, who gain experience and can do this at the bedside. And I'd probably uh, let Beth describe our experience because I think this is a testimonial of the fact that, um, that you may not need as much technical expertise in this as, or at least some of the high technical things like endoscopy or fluoroscopy in order to successfully develop a program of making, uh, placing post-pyloric feeding tubes. Well, Ms. Taylor, why don't you take it from there? Okay. Uh, Well, actually, we started our placement team here at Barnes-Jewish Hospital approximately six years ago. And really, all we had when we started was two people, myself and a uh, clinical nurse specialist assigned to the surgical intensive care unit that wanted to do it. So I think number one is you need to have somebody who wants to do it. It can be a variety of disciplines. It just needs to take a dedicated professional. We were trained in uh, blind bedside placement, and we just started practicing. And more time on tools, what I say, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So we find that if you limit the number of patients, or of, excuse me, if you limit the number of professionals who are placing the tubes, then your success rates are generally higher. 
our team success rate is around 86%. Uh, myself, who's been placing longer, I have a success rate of 92%, which you know is coming pretty close to what you're going to get with endoscopy or fluoroscopy even. So we find that it works really well. We don't have the risk of intrahospital transport to the patient. Uh, we don't have the the delay in getting the tube, because often if you're going to have someone from uh, GI radiology come up to a unit to put it in, it's kind of the last thing that they want to do. Now, we are also very lucky in that the intensivist in our unit can assist with a placement with an endoscope if I'm having trouble getting that in position blindly. So, if, again, that takes more time and a little more effort. So we save that to for those patients where we really need that assistance. But I think any unit can do it. You don't need to spend a lot of capital to get it going. You just have to have someone who's there who wants to do it and champion the effort. Can you share uh, a few of the just technical aspects of, of what you do? Sure. So basically, if I'm going to go in and put in a feeding tube, I first evaluate and make sure that that's a safe thing to do. In other words, it's not maybe a brand-new Whipple unless I you know, check with the surgeon first. But I go in with, I use a 10 French dilated feeding tube. Um, I go in, I place it uh, to the stomach first, auscultate, and then I will advance it. And it's generally just kind of by a sense of feel and also by use of different little tricks of the trade, kind of to see if you get... um, If you have a vacuum on your syringe while you're placing the tube, then you're usually in the small bowel. You can tell by somewhat uh, if you have a stylet in the tube, which we do, manipulating it where you don't pull it all the way out, but you can see whether there's a kink or not in the tube. And I put it to where I think I need to be. I usually try to get an aspirate. and check it so I can compare pHs and colors of aspirate from the stomach and the small bowel. And the whole placement takes maybe 10 to 15 minutes. And then we always get an abdominal radiograph to confirm placement prior to using it. And do you have problems uh, with it, with that tube migrating back into the stomach? And, and if you do that, are you able to salvage it, or does it have to be placed again? We do not. Actually, once the tube is placed into the small bowel, we did a study where we looked at that. We've now done over 3,000 tubes here, so we have a pretty good database, which I keep. And we do not have a problem with them migrating back into the stomach at all. If the tube is pulled, uh, we do save the stylet. The stylets of these days are not like the stylets of old days. They're a rounded tip. They don't extend to the end of the tube. Um, They don't go through the tubing. So we can, if the tube gets like pulled back to the stomach, reinsert the stylet and re-advance the tube. Wow. Um, I, th- I thought one of the other interesting aspects of this particular topic, uh, I work in a surgical ICU, and, and I guess Dr. T- uh, Dr. Mazuski, you're, you're a surgeon, is the issue of w- the timing of feeding uh, in the post-surgical critically ill patient, and that seems to have changed over the last few years, and my sense is that you may not even have to wait until there are, you know, quote-unquote bowel sounds, and that the patient may be able to tolerate certainly intestinal feedings before then, and I thought you could uh, make some comments on that. As, as a trauma surgeon, I think we've gotten fairly used and fairly comfortable to the idea that, in fact, most patients can be fed very early 
post-operatively or post-trauma, regardless of whether or not they have intestinal anastomosis, regardless of whether or not they have a they have gastroparesis and, and their stomach is not emptying, uh, regardless of what you hear clinically with bowel sounds. I mean, our experience with trauma patients has really suggested most of these patients can be fed fairly early on and that a lot of these issues that are that have been considered contraindications to enteral feeding, in fact, are not contraindications to enteral feeding. That being said, as a surgeon, I know that I have many of my colleagues are very uncomfortable with this idea, and it takes a while to get this into the repertoire. I think, again, the fact that we've been successful in trauma patients uh, suggests that this idea can be extended to other patients uh, as well. With regard to how soon you start the feedings, uh, that's, again, another area where we could probably have an entire podcast about the controversies related to timing of feedings. But I think certainly if you have access available to a patient, there's no big advantage to delaying the start of feedings. You may not be able to give them what you consider the optimal nutritional regimen from very first day, but I think you can certainly get them started on some sort of nutritional therapy fairly early on. And as a follow-up to that, I know one of the discussions is whether or not there is an intestinal anastomosis, and I know that there's controversy there as well with some people again feeling that that may not be a contraindication to enteral feeding as well. Can you comment on that? Yes, like I said, in our with our trauma population, again, I'm not uncomfortable with a patient being fed if they have an intestinal anastomosis. I think, again, one needs to be a little bit circumspect and not demand that the patient uh, be able to receive the entire nutritional regimen at the very first, uh, from the very first point of time. But I think given enough period of time and gradually developing, gradually working up to the full nutritional therapy, if the patient tolerates it, I think they can do well. I mean, there's certainly theoretical information out from animal studies that say, in fact, Mucosa derives most of its nutrients from the gut itself, and that in fact anastomoses heal better if they see nutrition, if they see nutrients within the lumen, than they do when when you deprive them of nutrients. So there's even some theoretical reasons why feeding anastomosis or providing nutrients to an anastomotic site may be advantageous in some cases. Well, and as a follow-up to that, if you're making a decision as an intensivist between low-dose enteral feeding versus total parenteral nutrition, I mean, I, many people would want to try and do early enteral, if at all possible. I mean, we've talked about this on multiple other podcasts. Yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that the if there's one advantage of enteral over parenteral, it's the fact that if, you get, if you're delivering some nutrients, then you can sort of back off from this feeling that you have to give the patient parenteral nutrition, which I think clearly is an inferior means of uh, nutrition for the critically ill patient. I thought I'd uh, conclude the podcast by reading, uh, I guess, sort of your last part of the the, uh, article here, which I thought was great, and let you make some final comments. Uh, You state, in the end, careful attention to the overall nutritional regimen of our critically ill patients based on current guidelines and the clinical expertise of nutritional support practitioners is likely more important than a narrow focus on the specific technique by which nutrients are delivered. And uh, I guess Ms. Taylor or or Dr. Mazuski, whoever would like to start. Um, I can. Um, I think that really that kind of does sum it up in the sense that it really doesn't need to be an argument over where to feed, just that we feed, and that primarily, if at all possible, we use the enteral route for 
when I talk about the reasons to use post-pyloric feeding, I don't want to say that there's no patients I would ever, you know, that I would not ever use the gastric route to feed, because of course I would. So I think that bottom line is we need to take care of these patients and give them what we can do for them, what we can nutritionally speaking, and that is to start early interval nutrition when we can to realize that we don't need to meet 100% of their goals, especially in the acute phase of their illness, and to gradually get them to go once they've gotten beyond that acute phase and give them the uh, nutrients that they need to improve overall health. Just one last follow-up question, I guess, to you, Ms. Taylor, and then we'll let uh, Dr. Mazuski have some final comments, is... So is that tube that you use a special weighted tube? Because I know those kinds of tubes do exist. What You said it's a feeding tube with a stylet in it or any right. other comments? No, it on is it? a non-weighted. I use a non-weighted. We actually looked at weighted versus non-weighted, and I found and my team here found that it's actually easier to place a non-weighted tube than a weighted tube, in our opinion. So it's a 10 French non-weighted feeding tube with a stylet. It's a polyurethane material, totally radiopaque. And so do you, uh, like, do you run a course or have some sort of an online thing uh, for hospitals that may not be doing this now that wanted to get started or something? Uh, actually, I'll have to say that the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Group that is a um, part of the American Dietetic Association, they run several workshops a year on how to place these feeding tubes. I've also gone to several different hospitals and done training myself on how to place the feeding tubes. There's a lot of bedside placement going on now, which makes me very happy. So there's a lot of opportunity. And anyone who would be interested and wanting to get something started, they could feel free to contact me and I could even get them in contact with somebody maybe who's close by that could start initiating some training. And in terms of organizationally, it's through your the nutrition department at Barnes-Jewish, and it's integrated into the various critical care departments, or will this be done on the floors also? Right. We have a nutrition support service here um, that places the feeding tubes in all the ICUs. We were doing it on the floor, but we had an issue with manpower. It became a little too popular. Uh-huh. So we had to back off on that right now because those patients can more easily travel. But it's not just restricted to the nutrition department. Again, we want to do what's best for the patients. So, for example, in the surgical intensive care unit where I'm based, I've trained five other nurses that place the feeding tubes, some of them that work weekends and nights, so that if a patient pulls a feeding tube or it comes out on a Friday night, they don't have to wait until Monday for me to get the tube back in. So we try to hit all shifts. So it's uh, actually a joint effort between at our hospital between nursing and nutrition support. And I, I guess you were implying that there, there's some sort of a, a pager or something that if this... Right. We have a 20... We actually... Have, the nutrition support has a 24-hour pager where they can page and make uh, an appointment. Actually, what we do is if they get to us by a certain time of the day, usually by noon, we'll get it in that day. Otherwise, it might have to wait till the next day. But by having unit-based nurses that are also doing the placement, they'll know, you know, right away if a patient has pulled a tube because they're designated as tube placers. So the nurses that are on will say, hey, can you come over here and help me out and put this feeding tube back in? Any final comments, Dr. Mazuski? 
I think I think to some uh, summarize as far as the you know the ability to do intestinal feeding or post pyloric feeding. Uh, I think as Beth has summed up, uh, we're very fortunate. I feel very fortunate to be at this particular facility where there are individuals very interested in this. I think if you're going to adopt this approach to patients at another unit, that clearly one of the important things is to have a dedicated group of individuals that do this. I know from my experience in other places that if you rely on just catch as catch can, you know, individual X, individual Y who happens to be there and has maybe done two or three, you're not going to get the same success rate. So I think it does require, you know, a effort to obtain the expertise in doing this. And then once that's uh, once that is developed, then generally you can, can continue doing it for a while. I think the final comment in the in the article again, I would emphasize though, I would hate for some place to fill an institution that says, well, we really can't do post pyloric feeding, so we're going to throw in the towel and just give uh, parental nutrition to everybody and not even try. Because again, the data is not overwhelming that says that post-pyloric feeding is the only way to go. I think it is an advantage uh, in select patients groups, particularly in the surgical groups. I would say in the medical groups, it's not been shown to have the same degree of benefits. And I would certainly encourage careful attention to making sure the patient is getting adequate nutrition or is being started on a nutritional regimen uh, rather than just focusing on, well, I got to be able to do the correct technical thing or started it, you know, within 12 hours of this. You know, I think those are sub-issues, and I think the importance is making sure that patients are thought about getting adequate nutrition and that you don't have a patient that develops a horrendous cumulative energy deficit of 20 or 30 or 40,000 calories because for 10 or 15 days, nobody's thought about nutrition and has neglected that. And I think that's where we really get into problems with the malnutrition in these patients rather than the patients that you're arguing about, well, did they get started yesterday or today? I don't think is as important an issue. So I think having the technical abilities within a department and also protocolizing and thinking about nutrition for every patient that's going to be up in the ICU for any period of time are the important ways that we have to attempt to improve outcome in this group of patients from the standpoint of receiving adequate nutritional therapy. Today's podcast is an audio companion to an article published in the February 2007 issue of Critical Connections entitled Gastric versus Intestinal Feedings, Does It Make a Difference? And today we've been speaking with John Mazuski, MD, PhD, FCCM, and Beth Taylor, RD, FCCM, both from Washington University in St. Louis, Barnes Jewish Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, February 7th, 2007. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell.
Discover successful strategies on how to achieve the maximum benefits of nutrition therapy at the 6th Summer Conference in Intensive Care Medicine. Nutrition as a Therapeutic Agent to Improve Critical Care Outcomes. To be held June 14th through the 16th, 2007 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Developed by the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, this conference will cover topics such as the benefits and limitations of select nutrients, successful strategies involved in enteral and parenteral nutrition therapy, and similarities and differences in international nutrition guidelines. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.